Thank you for listening to the Soul City Church podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook and Instagram at Soul City Church. For more information, visit us on our website, soulcitychurch.com. Well, Soul City Church, good morning. Okay, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Good morning. That was even better. You know, we always need two rounds. We always need a little redo. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, Well, good morning once again. My my name's John. Uh, If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I am one of the pastors here. And whether you are one of the many, many people in this room or whether you're worshiping with us online, I'm just really glad that you're here. I, I, I say this, I think, every time I get up here, but it is a privilege. It is an honor to have the opportunity to speak with you all for a little bit and hopefully maybe teach a little something. I hope God speaks to you. I hope he has been speaking to you and maybe even more over the course of the next few minutes. Uh, You know, that question that Brandon just had you all conversing about, I actually think that's just a really good question to ask just for like self-awareness purposes. You know, like when people look at you, what do you think the first thing that they notice is? And I'm sure we had all kinds of different answers. I'm sure for many of you, your answer was a physical characteristic. You know, anything from your height to your hair, you know, from the, the style of your clothes to the color of your skin. The first thing that, that you think people notice when they look at you. Others of you, it wasn't maybe a physical characteristic, but maybe, maybe it's more of a personality trait. Like the first thing people notice when they interact with you is how loud you are. Or maybe how quiet and reserved you are. Or maybe, maybe you have a, an accent or some kind of unique dialect that people are always asking about. Where are you from? What's, what's that about? Yeah, I'm interested. I, and, you know, I thought, as I was thinking about that question, I thought it might be fun, instead of me answering that question about myself, I thought it would be fun if you all answered that question about me right now. Because you all are looking at me right now. So, so do me a favor, pretend you don't know me, pretend you don't know anything about me, just when you look at me, what are some of the first things that you notice? You can shout it out, that's okay. What is that? Oh, I, everyone said it, how tall I am, yes. Yes, uh, I, I'm like 6'3", pushing 6'4". Of those of you online, I'm a little bit taller than your, your laptop screen or your phone screen. Uh, what else? What else? Style. My style? Oh, I, I hope that's a good thing when you say my style. Uh, maybe not, though. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, what else? What else do you notice? What? That I have a happy face. That's very nice. What, what did everyone just laugh at? Jawline. Someone said that in the first service, too. I really didn't set this up as like a moment for y'all to gas me up, but I feel pretty good. I recommend that you all do this. I really, I really do. This has been great for my self-esteem. I I, I do. I appreciate you all taking part in that, in that little game there. It was way less traumatizing than I anticipated that it would be. But it's not, you know, as much as there are, you know, all these different things that you might notice, I, I bet you know that there are certain things that you don't see just by looking at me, right? Like, like, just by looking at me, you wouldn't know that I'm a father. You know, you might guess that by the bags under my eyes, that I have an 11-month-old daughter, and you would be right. But you wouldn't know that just by looking at me. Just by looking at me up here on this stage in front of all of you, you might assume that I am an extrovert, and I'm like a big people person. But what you wouldn't know just by looking at me is that I often feel way more comfortable up here 
than I do in everyday social interactions. And what you really wouldn't know is that's because I grew up in a family that was extremely introverted. And so I didn't necessarily learn at a young age how to engage in social conversation. And what you really wouldn't know is I actually carry a lot of shame about that, that I feel so awkward as an adult in those environments. Several of you made comments about, you know, the physical makeup of my body or my face and jawline, which I very much appreciate. Thank you. Uh, But what you wouldn't know just by looking at me is I actually carry a lot of deep, long-held insecurities about my body and that I actually have a history of disordered eating because of those insecurities. You wouldn't know that about me just by looking at me. Well, what I'm trying to get you to see is there is a difference between looking and seeing, isn't there? Like, like there is a difference between looking at someone and, and truly seeing someone. My guess is you already know this because my guess is you encounter this very often, if not every day. For those of you who live in the Chicagoland area, maybe you've had this experience. You know, you're driving and you pull off the interstate or maybe you're walking around your neighborhood or this neighborhood here in the West Loop and you notice one of our brothers and sisters who is currently houseless. And maybe you look at the possessions that they carry with them. Maybe you look at and even maybe read a sign that they're holding. But if you're like me, it's actually pretty rare that I take a moment and really see that person in front of me. This doesn't just happen, you know, in the real world. You can think about, uh, think about the online dating world. Single friends out there. Hey. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Listen. You know when you're swiping and you're just looking. You know? You know what it feels like to swipe and just be looking rather than actually trying to see who might be out there for you to get into a real relationship with. I actually think this is true of all social media. Social media is an entire industry. It's an entire digital reality based on this idea of look at me or look at others rather than see me or see others. I think if we're honest, oftentimes what we post online highlights what we want people to look at in order to maybe distract them from what they or we might otherwise see. There's a difference between looking and seeing. And and I wonder if you have ever felt that way. Like, have have you ever felt looked at, but you didn't really feel seen? Maybe at work by a boss or a coworker. Maybe it was at a church like this, by by a pastor like me. Maybe it was in a past dating relationship or even within your own family where, where that person or that interaction, it left you feeling overlooked or you just felt completely misunderstood or maybe you felt totally invisible or, or that person, they, they were looking at you, but, but they didn't really see you. I think we've all probably had moments like that. And as much as we all have had moments where individuals or people groups or even entire institutions have failed to see us, I know I would be lying if I didn't say that sometimes I do that exact same thing to others. I know that there are people in my life, there's people who I come across, I run across every single day who I might notice them, I might look at them, I may even have a whole conversation with them but I fail to actually see them. And there's a difference between looking and seeing. That's just true. And today, what I want us to talk about 
is how we might actually make a transition. How we might transition from merely looking at people to truly beginning to see people for all of who God created them to be. Because I believe that that transition, that work is actually central to the transformational work God wants to do in our lives and that God wants to do in our world. So that's where we're headed today. And and as Pastor Brandon mentioned, we are kicking off a brand new teaching series this week called Greatest Hits of the Bible. I'm really excited about this series. Here's how it's going to work. Over the course of the next several weeks, you will see different members of our teaching team up here, and they're going to walk you through just some of our absolute personal favorite stories in the Bible. We kind of just said, pick your favorite story and teach the heck out of it. Have fun. So I, I highly encourage you to make it a priority to be here these next couple of weeks because it's going to be a really fun series. We're going to be digging into some familiar and unfamiliar stories, asking what new thing these old stories might have to say to us in the here and now. And today, I'm really pumped because we are diving into one of my personal all-time favorite stories in the Bible, and it is a story in large part about this difference that we've been talking about between looking and seeing. So it's time to get into the greatest hit. So if you would, reach under the seat in front of you, grab a Bible. That will be very important for the rest of our time today. Uh, There should be a Bible located just under the seat in front of you if you didn't bring your own. We have one for you. And turn that Bible to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. If you're worshiping with us online, grab your own Bible, open up a tab, Genesis 16. If you're here in the Soul City Bible, that should be on page 11. Genesis 16 is on page 11. A little context for those who are not familiar before we dive in. The book of Genesis, it is the first book in the Bible. And this book is ginormous and it is filled with so many goodies. One of them, uh, the book begins by telling the story of the foundations of the universe created by God. And then the book starts to tell all these different stories of how this creator God relates to his creation. Specifically, how God relates to human beings. And one of the human beings that God relates to first in the book of Genesis is a man named Abram or Abraham. What happens is God makes a covenant or God gives a promise. God makes this relational agreement with Abraham. And the promise goes like this, that God is going to build a family. God's going to build a people. God is going to build up a strong nation through Abraham's children and descendants. If you were a Sunday school kid growing up, You might be familiar with the Sunday school banger, Father Abraham had many sons, here we go, and many sons had Father Abraham. If you don't know that song, if you don't know that song, consider yourself lucky, that's all I'm going to say. You're actually lucky you missed out on that one. This is that Abraham that we're talking about. This guy, he is a chosen one by God. He is the chosen father to a chosen nation through whom God is going to bless the whole world. There's only one problem with this big old plan. And it's that up until this point in the story, Abraham and his wife Sarai, or Sarah, up until this point in the story, they have been unable to conceive any children. And so in Genesis chapter 16, we see this chosen, blessed And yet very desperate couple begin to take matters into their own hands. We are going to look at Genesis chapter 16. We're starting to read in verse 1. Here we go. Get ready. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, 
The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with who? Sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. We continue. When she knew she was pregnant, Hagar, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. So she fled from her. One of the things that I love most about the Bible is the nuance and the multidimensional nature in which it portrays its characters. If you remember, we just talked about how Abraham is one of the heroes of the Christian faith. This guy is one of Christianity's founding fathers. He is one of the patriarchs. And yet, if you read the section of Genesis that tells the story of Abraham, you'll notice that while there are plenty of stories where Abraham does some incredibly wise, intelligent, and faith-filled things, there are also just as many stories where this same man makes unwise, foolish, selfish, and even downright sinful decisions, just like a real human being does. And this moment In Genesis 16, this moment is not Abraham or Sarah's finest hour. The ancient style of storytelling that we see here in Genesis is usually deliberately vague on a lot of the details of the story. You'll notice that if you read through Genesis. We don't really get as many details as we are used to in a modern-day novel, say. But that's because this is a different ancient style of storytelling. But don't let the lack of specifics fool you. What Abraham and Sarah are doing here is exactly what it sounds like. They are forcing a foreign enslaved girl to have sex with and bear the child of a man in power. Make no mistake about it. And the mistreatment of Hagar that's described in verse 6 likely would have included multiple forms of verbal, emotional, and even physical abuse. Make no mistake, what this couple is doing to this girl is absolutely horrifying. And the question that I ask myself when I read a story like this is how does this type of thing happen? Because we can't just write off Abraham and Sarah as pure evil. Because we we already said, these people have been chosen by God. They, They are lauded as heroes of the Christian faith. And that's not me excusing their behavior here. But I think we have to ask the question, how did these people, how did this couple get to a point where they would allow themselves to treat another person so cruelly? What allowed them to take such inhumane action against another human being? And the more that I sit with this text over the years, the more I have come to believe that the thing that caused the greatest amount of brokenness in this story was Abraham and Sarah's inability and at times unwillingness to see Hagar at all. 
If you look at the story again, if you read through it again, you will notice never once do Abraham or Sarah use Hagar's name. Her name is only used by the narrator. For Abraham and Sarah, they only refer to her as my slave, your slave, her, or she. And that is very, very purposeful by the author. The author is trying to get you inside the minds of these characters to show you that for Abraham and Sarah, Hagar is not a person. She is merely property to them. They don't see her as a human being. They only look at her as a potential solution to their problem. You see, we sin against other people, not just by taking inhumane action against them. But we set ourselves up to sin against other people and take action against them the minute we fail to see the humanity inside of them. The, the sin of sinning against someone actually starts when you fail to see the person. Because it's a lot easier to mistreat a person when you miss or ignore their humanity. When they're just a solution to, their, to your problem. When they're just a way to get your needs met. Or a way for you to climb the ladder or just someone or something for you to walk by as you get to where you need to go. It still happens in our day, and that's what's happening here to Hagar. And so Hagar runs away. She flees to the wilderness, and we pick up the story in verse 7. Let's continue reading. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that was beside the road to Shur. And he said what? Hagar. He said to her, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now that might sound like all kinds of crazy based on what we just said, but let's keep reading. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants, Hagar, so much that they will be too numerous to count. That sounds like the exact promise or a promise very similar to the one that God gave Abraham. So be clear, the angel is not sending her back to her abuser to go fight and get over it herself. But he says, go back and I will be with you. I will cover you. I will watch over you. We're gonna skip down to verse 13. She gave this name, Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who what? You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Now, as I said, this is one of my all-time favorite stories ever. And I wish we had like 15 hours or so together so that we could unpack all of the beautiful nuance and all of the wonderful implications of this short interaction that Hagar has with the angel. But we don't have 15 hours today. So the one thing that I want you to notice, the one thing I want you to take away today is this. If you remember, in the first half of the story, Abraham and Sarah, two blessed and yet very broken people, they completely fail to see Hagar. And because they overlook her, they mistreat her. But then in the second half of the story, Hagar, this scared, young, enslaved, lost girl, she has a very different encounter. She has an encounter with the angel of the Lord who begins the conversation by calling her by name. Says, Hagar, 
something Abraham and Sarah never did. The angel then asks her some questions. Where have you come from? Where are you going? This is not a being who's just looking at her. This is a being who is seeking to see her by understanding her history. Where have you come from? And trying to see her by understanding her hopes and desires for the future. Where are you going? In the first half of the story, Hagar is completely overlooked by people. And then in the second half of the story, Hagar comes face to face with the God who sees her. Very simply, what we encounter in this story is the profound and challenging truth that God sees who we overlook. Very simply, God has eyes on, God has his heart postured toward the people who we completely miss. Sometimes we miss them for the sake of our own comfort, for the sake of our own convenience. Like God sees your coworker who is clearly going through a rough time. That coworker who could clearly use a listening ear, maybe an invitation to a lunch, but you got a to-do list. Like you got deadlines to hit. And to be honest, you guys aren't really that close anyway, so it might be kind of weird if you started asking her about her personal life. God sees that person. God sees the suffering in communities from Highland Park to the Ukraine to the 53 trafficked human beings that were found dead in the back of a semi-truck in Texas earlier this month. Do you remember that? These communities that many of us, we only look at them when they're in the headlines. And we so quickly forget about them once they're out of the news. I thought about this earlier this week. God sees the people who we only look at their position. Here's what I mean. They repost one piece of conservative media or they share one video from Vox or CNN and just like that, from that instant forward, we only look at them as an enemy rather than actually seeking to see them as a brother or sister who we might not agree with but we are still in the family with. I wonder if where we stand on the position While that is important, I wonder if that's not as important as the work of learning to see people. I wonder if that's what maybe brings us back together. I mean, heck, God God sees the people who we won't even look at. Like the people that we actively ignore because of fear or, or because of ignorance. Or if we're really honest, because underneath that fear and ignorance, there's actually some bias. There's actually some prejudice that exists in our heart that is blinding us from seeing the individual within a people group. God sees who we overlook. And I actually think that part of the work of spiritual maturity, part of the work of transformation that we talk about here, part of the ministry of Jesus, of bringing and building God's beautiful kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, part of that work is learning to see how God sees and learning to see who God sees. You know, you already know that the work of seeing someone, you know that is deeply spiritual work if you know what it is like to feel seen by somebody. Some of you know this, but a few years ago, my wife Erin and I and our our friend community, we lost one of our closest friends. Very tragically, he took his own life. And I remember it was the Sunday after, we, we got the news on a Sunday, and the next Sunday we came to church. And if you can imagine, we weren't exactly in the most joyous mood we've ever been in. And I remember we were standing over here in the lobby and we were standing in a group of people 
And one of the people was, was Kelly Skiles, our executive pastor. And the conversation topic was like extremely light. We were laughing really hard. I'm sure I said something that was hilarious or something. And, you know, everyone was laughing. That's the kind of how it goes. Uh, but no, the, the, the topic was just really light. We were all laughing. And, you know, Aaron and I, obviously, while we weren't necessarily feeling that joy, we, we were kind of coasting. We were feeling a little numb. And the interaction ended. Everyone was laughing. Everyone walked away. And then as Aaron and I were leaving, Kelly, Kelly came down the stairs and stopped us. And she said, hey, I didn't want to let you guys go before I checked in on you. I, I, saw, that, I saw about your friend. I'm so sorry. How can I be there for you? Can I pray with you right now? What do you need? Can I send you something? She saw us in that moment. I never told Kelly about it, but she had heard it through the grapevine and she made it her intention. I am going to see these people who are hurting. I'm going to see something that you're not going to be able to see just by looking at them, but I'm going to slow down and I'm going to ask God, how can I see the people around me? And so for me now, a regular practice from that interaction and from so many other interactions where people at this church and other people have made me feel seen. A regular question I ask now in prayer is just, God, who do you want me to see? Straight up. God, today, as I walk around, who do you want me to see? Who in my life have I only been looking at? Like, who have I maybe completely missed? Who have I completely overlooked that you want me to see? Who needs to be seen right now? I wonder if you would ask that question of God today. Who does God want you to see? Who has God actually uniquely positioned you to see? Who does God want that person to know that God sees them? And not by sending the angel of the Lord in the wilderness, but by sending you into their lives. Is it someone at your office? Someone at your coffee shop? Is it the person who lives next door to you, who you see every single day, but you never actually slowed down, taking the time to learn their name? Learn a little bit about them. You have no idea what that interaction might mean. Is it a, a people group? Is it people from a certain culture for you who you kind of choose to ignore maybe? Is it people from you know, a certain part of a globe? Is it people with a certain ideology that is different from yours? And you needed to do that hard work of admitting and confessing, God, I have some biases that are blinding me from actually seeing people. Maybe it's someone even closer than that. Like maybe it's actually one of your closest friends. It might be someone in your family. It could be your spouse, your sibling, your own kids. I know this is true for me. I can get so caught up in my own busyness. I can get so caught up in taking care of my family that I actually don't take a minute to slow down and see the people in my family see what they're going through, see their needs, see how I can actually be there for them rather than coming up with my own agenda for what they need. I'm not sure who it will be for you, but that, that's our homework for this week. It's really, really simple to ask that question in prayer, God, who do you want me to see? And then the real extra credit is to follow it up with what would it look like for me to see them? Like, what do I need to do? What action do I need to take? What do I need to say? 
And so, so we're going to enter into a time of worship and prayer. And if you're a person who writes things down, I find that that's really helpful. If you have a journal or you want to take out your phone right now, I encourage you to write down those two questions. God, who do you want me to see? And what would it look like for me to see them? And during this time, I just want you to get quiet with God and see what the Holy Spirit downloads into your mind and into your heart. As you pray, God, who do you want me to see? Ask the Holy Spirit to put a name, to put an area of the globe, to put a neighborhood, to put a certain people group or demographic. Whatever God places on your mind, trust it, write it down. And then pray, God, what would it look like for me to see them? What actions do I need to take? What words do I need to share with that person? What conversations do I need to have? What intention do I need to set this week to make sure that I do not overlook the people who God wants me to see and who God wants to see through me? Because our, that's the work of our God. Our God is the God who sees. And not only does our God see the people that we overlook, but I don't want you to leave here today without knowing that God sees you too. Just because you may overlook people from time to time doesn't mean that God doesn't see you. Because there, there are some Hagars in this room. There are some Hagars who have been mistreated and who have been overlooked and who right now walked in here feeling like they were running in the wilderness. God sees you. God sees you in your feelings of unworthiness and in your fear. God is not just looking at you. I think that's the idea I had of God for a long time, that God was up on his throne in heaven just kind of looking at my life. He was specifically looking at my mistakes. God was looking at my sin. God was looking at my past and judging it. No, the reality is that in Jesus, God came down to this earth and the ministry of Jesus, first and foremost, was one of seeing people. In Jesus, God says, I see you and I love you. Do you know that? God sees you. God loves you. God sees the parts of you that even you would want to ignore. God sees the things in you that other people have dismissed or thrown aside. God sees your past. God sees your future. God sees where you've come from. God sees where you're going. God sees all of you. And not just in spite of, but because of all of that and through all of that and in all of that, God loves you. God sees you. God loves you. That's the gift we've been given in Jesus. In Jesus, we've been given the gift of being seen and loved by God. And out of that, our invitation is to share that with the whole world. A world, by the way, that is so often just looking and judging. We are called to be a people who see and who love. And I believe from the bottom of my heart, that is the type of people we can be, Soul City. People who see and people who love. And so I would love, if you would, if you're in this room and you're able, would you just stand uh, with me real quick as, as we join in that prayer together? As we pray that brave prayer and ask that question of God.
God, we come before you and we ask, God, who do you want us to see? I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would place names on people's hearts and minds. Open us up to receive those names, to receive those challenges. And maybe they're scary. Maybe they feel sort of insurmountable. Maybe it feels uncomfortable. God, would we push past all of that fear, knowing that if you said it, then it's going to happen. If you said it, if you've called us to it, you're going to walk us through it. You're going to walk with us as we seek to see people that maybe we've been overlooking. And God, forgive us, forgive us when our eyes are blind to the people you want us to see. When we actively turn away, God, forgive us, forgive us. And God, I pray that in all of it, that as we go out to try and see and love other people, that it would come from a place of knowing deeply that we are already seen and loved by you. Would every single person in this room know that? beyond their doubts, beyond their past, beyond their misgivings, beyond their questions, would they know that right now in Jesus, they are seen by you and they are loved by you? And would that be our courage? Would that be our strength? Would that be our heart as we move forward to take that into this world? Jesus, we thank you and we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.